So my name is Ryan and uh, also one of the pastors here and we're continuing on in our series of just looking at a number of different psalms and this has been a lot of fun for us because as we've been saying the psalms in many ways are a soundtrack for life uh, just as you have those songs or those those soundtracks that you've heard in certain seasons or points in your life and they evoke certain memories and responses, the Psalms are very similar and they evoke in us and they remind us of certain experiences and remind us too that, that the Bible and the story that God's telling all the way from creation to fall to redemption, restoration, is one in which he understands the human experience. Uh, he understands what it's like to struggle, to be filled with joy, to have sorrow, to be lonely, depression, uh, moments of great community, and um, just jubilation. So the whole gamut we see laid out for us in the Psalms. So this is a beautiful opportunity for us to kind of look at different Psalms, and today we're going to continue in Psalm 46. So um, this week I got an email from my mom, um, a frantic email, uh, had a lot of exclamation points and, and question marks, and it was from an AOL address, so first I had to make sure that AOL still existed. But my mom uses AOL, and she sends me an email titled, EARTHQUAKE, in all caps, and it also had a bunch of question marks and exclamation points attached to the email. And I open it up, and on it is the link to a, a, a news story that I'm sure many of you saw. So many of you probably even recognize this cover. This was something from the last edition of The New Yorker that came out. And when this came out, it went viral all over Facebook, especially for us here in Seattle. Uh, there was a, a sort of pandemonium of sorts, as many of us were awakened to the reality uh, we learned these new terms. I know I did, like the Cascadia subduction zone, which means there is this fault line off the Pacific Ocean, which I guess could, could lead to calamity for us. I mean, there was one quote in there talking about complete toast and desolation for us in Seattle and tsunamis and all this stuff. And I, I, was, I was fascinated, too, at the response, the response that many of us had. And Amazon talked about what, they had a spike in sales of disaster preparation kits. Um, there was one company that specializes in selling disaster preparation kits, and they said they had as much sales in the last two weeks as they had the whole entire last year combined. So people are running out and stocking up on flashlights and canned goods and water and all that good stuff because there is a, a danger, a, a present danger of a possible earthquake or, 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 or situation that could shake us. And while this percentage is small, in fact, they said it was probably 10% in the next 50 years that this event would actually occur, there are things that shake us every day. There are things that we want safety from. There are things that cause chaos and turn our lives upside down. And if we're honest, we look for a refuge. We look for a place that is safe and that can withstand the trials and the difficulties and the obstacles that life brings our way. In fact, I don't know about you guys, but just think about it. What causes you fear? What keeps you up at night? What concerns you? What shakes you? Maybe your future at work seems a bit dicey right now, and that shakes you. Maybe as you look at the task of parenting that you have in front of you and all the decisions you have to make and, what you, and, and, and how your kids are being raised and, and who they're becoming, that leaves you with great angst and, and shakes you. Maybe if you're honest, you, you look at a lot of your relationships right now. You look even at your marriage, and you see it not where you want it to be, and, and that shakes you. And all of us, all of us, Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. Every one of us in this room, we're looking for a place of safety because life can be chaotic. Life can be disorienting. And the question I think Psalm 46 has for us is, where do we go when we look for safety? 
Where do we go when we look for a place that can protect us and withstand the challenges that life brings our way? I think the psalmist had this exact question in mind as he wrote our words out. So if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 46 with me this morning. There's also a Bible in front of you that you could also borrow, and we'll have the words up here for you on the screen so you can see them. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar, roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Selah. And Selah, Selah is a way of saying stop, pause, think about what has just been said. Think about what has just been shared. And as we think about, as we consider the words, even in these opening verses of Psalms, of this Psalm, what we see beyond a shadow of a doubt is that the Lord offers us a refuge. The Lord is our strength and a refuge in times of trouble, in times of calamity, in times of crisis. And when it seems like all of life is stacked up against us, the Lord offers us an ever-present help in this trouble, a refuge. Now see, I couldn't help but read this psalm this week and even think of our brothers and sisters in Christ scattered all over this world who are our real refugees. In the Middle East today, there are over a million Christians that are refugees due to war-torn nations and upheaval and violence and persecution and suffering and sorrow. And they really, I wonder when they read this psalm, when they see the words here in Psalm 46 and they read that the Lord is their refuge, what comes to their mind? What comes to your mind? What's your refuge? What's your place you go when you're looking for safety, when you're looking for comfort, when you're looking for protection? See, this really is the question of where do you go for safety? Where do you go for rest? For many of us, rest is elusive. It's one of those things, if we're honest, we, we go through life and we feel tired and we feel worn out and we feel stressed and we feel like we're always behind. We feel like the challenges of life are stacking up against us. And it doesn't really seem like much of a reality that God is a refuge, that he is a place of strength for us. And life can seem quite hard and difficult. See, there's this reality for a lot of us that um, we don't always get to choose our circumstances and we don't always get to choose the, circum the places in which we find ourselves. And if we're just honest this morning, um, we, we don't know where to turn. We, and we read words like God is our refuge and God is our strength and that doesn't seem like our reality at all. And I don't know about you, but for me, we can run to these worst case scenarios and the what ifs start to play out in our mind. What if, what if I remain alone? What if I never find someone to marry? What if fill in the blank? And our minds run wild with these what ifs. Um, and fear, fear becomes our steady state, becomes the thing that we feel most frequently, almost a constant feeling companion that never leaves us. And it's crippling. And some of these fears, some of these realities, they're real. I mean, and some of them I don't want to make light of. But other fears, some fears have taken hold of us. We've forgotten that there is a refuge. There's a place of safety. There's a place of comfort. There is a God who's over all things, a God who is in control of this world that we can rely on, that we can trust. When I was a kid, um, I remember 
uh, I had to be like four or five, and I was living in Colorado. And one summer afternoon, I was at the park with this summer camp program, and about uh, a couple hundred yards away, this cloud in the sky began to turn into a funnel. And uh, we, we had one van, and there were about 24 kids there. So they actually had to take two shifts back to the rec center, or two, two van trips back to the rec center. And I happened to be on the second van trip. I don't know how they decided which kids got to go on the first, and which and maybe, maybe I, I don't know, they didn't like me. Um, but by the time we pulled out of that, that, that parking lot, away from that park, that funnel was starting to come down. And I got to see this tornado. And I saw it starting to come down, and I remember the sound, and I remember what it felt like. And even to this day, it's a very powerful feeling and sensation that I still remember, seeing a tornado. And what this did in me is throughout the rest of my childhood and adolescence, I had this incredible fear of tornadoes. Um, I would be addicted to the Weather Channel. I would watch the Weather Channel nonstop, just finding out if there was even a remote possibility a tornado could exist within a 500-yard radius around me for the next week. I just wanted to know. And if there was, even if there was a tornado hundreds of miles away, I would go get it in our bathtub because it was in the center of our house. I would get, you know, um, a, a plastic bin that we had too, and I'd put it over myself, and I'd sit in the bathtub just being as safe and prepared as I could. I wanted a refuge from any possible tornado damage. And this was irrational, and it was silly, but to me, it was all together real. The what-if scenario of a tornado was my altogether reality. This was true. This was true. I didn't necessarily think that I had a place that could keep me safe enough. Um, even if I had a basement and a bunker, I still would have been terrified of the tornadoes and the possibility of what that would look like. So for you, what is the worst case scenario that you've built up in your mind? What is the thing that you fear happening and it grips you and it holds tight to you? When you look at your life, when you consider your future, when you consider all of the decisions in front of you, what is it? that sometimes causes your mind to run rampant? What is it? What is that thing? What is that thing that you cannot get refuge from? The psalmist moves on and he pushes us to look deeply into God's goodness. Look at this in verse four. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our forest, fortress, our fortress. What we're seeing here, look at verse 4 again. Verse 4 points out to us without a shadow of a doubt that there is a river. So what we saw in verse 3 is that there is fear, there's chaos inside of the foam and roar of the ocean. Now, if you were an Old Testament person, if you lived in this ancient period, you would consider the seas and the ocean something to be terrified of. They were the most dangerous thing that people could imagine and consider. The ocean was a place of great terror and often danger. And it's immediately contrasted in verse 4. So we go from verse 3, where the water is a source of chaos and fear, to verse 4, where the water becomes a source of life. 
So there's a river. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This river, this river is a representation. It's telling us that this is God. God is a, is a river. And this river, everything that is planted alongside this river, everything that has access to this river will flourish. Because the water here is not chaotic. It's not upending. It's not dangerous. It's not roaring. But rather it's stable and it's consistent and it's life-giving and leads to flourishing. And city of God here, this would have immediately rang true in their ears of being Jerusalem. Of Jerusalem. This is where God dwells. This is where God makes his home. So in God's home, in Jerusalem, there is a river that gives life. There's a river that gives life. And for you and I who live inside the new covenant because of Jesus' work on the cross, the Jerusalem is the church. It's us. It's us as a family. It's us as a people. The city of God, where God takes up his residence, is in his church, in his people, especially as we come together, as we gather, as we connect, as we serve, as we love, as we sing songs. This is God's people. This is where God dwells. This is where God takes up residence. I often think about it, and I I mean, just my heart breaks for many of you when, when I sit down, have coffee with you, or I meet with you, or we share a meal, and you tell me, man, God just feels stagnant in my life. God just feels far off. I feel disconnected. I'm going through a really hard season. I'm not sure what the Lord is doing. And always my first question is, is are you connected to community? Are you connected to other believers in Christ? Are you part of God's family? Because God's stream, his, his source of life, this, this Holy Spirit that as we gather collectively, because God is saving a people, he's not just saving a group of islands. He's saving a people. He's saving a people from all nations, tongues, and tribes. And as he does that, as he does, as he, does that he brings us together as a family. The good news of the gospel is not just that you get your sins forgiven, it's that you get adopted into God's family. You get a new family, and you get a new nature, and you get a new identity, and you're a son, and you're a daughter of the God Most High. And part of that is the privilege of getting to participate and be blessed by God's people as we live out these one another's. In in the New Testament, there's 57 one another's that in some ways shape the ethic of the church. It shapes the value system of the church as we forgive one another, as we love one another, as we encourage one another, as we admonish one another. We're living out life in all these one another's. Every time a one another is practiced, we're experiencing God's grace to us. We're experiencing his work of the Holy Spirit, and we're slowly, one degree to the next, being more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that is ultimately what God's doing in your life. If you ever wonder what God is up to, what he's doing, is he slowly, one degree to the next, through every decision you make, what even seems Monday, Monday through Friday, picking Cheerios off the ground, moms, driving to traffic, driving in traffic, even when it takes you 45 minutes to go three blocks, that is all part of God's work in your life, to one degree to the next, slowly conform you more into the image of Jesus Christ, to make you more patient, to make you more loving, to help you see the meaningful inside the mundane. All of that is God's work. And we get one shot at this. I mean, this life is but a mist. And you and I are here to be a blessing to one another as we sanctify, encourage, serve, love one another. And the beautiful thing, I mean, it's church, so of course you expect me to say it, but it's just true. Church, God's people, God's family has been utterly transformative in my life. Often the greatest clarity, the greatest encouragement, the greatest conviction, the greatest direction in my life, 
the greatest help, the greatest counseling for my marriage and my relationships have come from God's people. Because inside of you dwells the Holy Spirit. and Inside of me dwells the Holy Spirit. And we're around one another. The Holy Spirit speaks to us, encourages us through each other. So, I mean, it's, it's not a pitch. It's because I love you and I want good for you. But if you're here and you kind of are one of those people that float on the edges of church, on the edge of church community, and you wonder, man, why am I not growing more? Why do I feel disconnected? Where is God at? God is with his people. God is working in his people. Join up with the streams in God's church. Join up where his life is. Look at verse 6 as well as it moves on here. It says, The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. I don't know about you, but, you know, um, I can get kind of depressed or fearful or stressed out when I watch too much news. Um, the news often kind of gives us these, these narratives of whatever's going on in Washington or with other government leaders or even our Supreme Court can seem so important or almost absolute or life-ending. And we look at what's going on in America and maybe some of us become too obsessive and focused on it and think that really God's kingdom or God's work is somehow contingent upon our governments or even the decisions our elected officials make or what's happening with other countries. And we forget over all of that. And this has been going on for thousands of years that God's continued to be faithful to his people, that he's continued to love his people regardless of the nations, regardless of governments that come and go. God continues to push his church forward. And this doesn't mean there's not hard times for God's people. In fact, I have no idea what the church will look like in America probably in the next 30, 40 years. I imagine it will be drastically different than what the church has looked like the last 40 years. You can bet on that. But here's what I do know is that there won't be a vote, there won't be a president, and there won't be a Supreme Court that saves us because there is one ruler of the heavens and the earth and that job's taken by Jesus. We're never going to vote on it again. We don't have to worry about it. It won't be up for debate. Jesus will continue to rule and reign. He'll continue to be faithful to his people. Even as the nations rage and even as kingdoms totter, the Lord rules and the Lord reigns. And this provides us great safety and comfort, even from a national and international perspective as we look around at the world around us. And here we get to the very crux of what this psalm is about in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now see, fortress is not a word that you and I use very often. We often don't walk around and talk about a fortress. Um, this is language that would seem, I don't know, probably five-year-old boys talk more about forts and fortresses. But what it really is, here's a definition. A permanent structure to offer defensive protection of everything behind it. A permanent structure to offer defensive protection of everything behind behind it. So what it is, is you are. You're building a, a wall of sorts. Wall is much more the language when we sit down and talk with one another that would be a, 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 a familiar for us. A wall. And I don't know about you guys, but I hear this all the time, even in conversations, you know. So-and-so let me down, and I, I began to build this wall. That person disappointed me, or didn't come through, or that person let me down, or maybe even that person abused me, and I built this wall. I felt judged. I walked into that church. They didn't do what I expected them to do. They weren't nearly as holy as I thought they would be. It turned out they were a bunch of hypocrites. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. You got it right. We, we are. We, we're all in need of grace. And, and we build these walls. 
Or at some point I felt shame, I felt judgment, I felt marginalized, I felt pushed to the side, and I began to build this wall. And all of us, I mean, all of us have walls. All of us walked in here today with walls. Walls that we think will provide us safety from others. Walls that we think will keep other people out. Walls that we think will keep other people from getting too close to us or finding out what we're really like. In fact, I call it the 90-10 rule. Even in, in life groups, even when we try to do Christian community, often what ends up happening is we'll share about 90% of our stories and our realities and what we're really dealing with and what we're going through, and we keep the last 10%, and it's usually the really good stuff. It's the stuff we need to share. It's the stuff that needs to be found out. It's the stuff that really needs the gospel applied to it, and we'll keep it locked up because it just seems a little bit too tense, a little too dangerous for polite society. So we put a wall around it. We quarantine it. We quarantine a piece of who we are, of our hearts, and really what's going on in us. And we build these walls. A facade is another way to look about, think about it. A facade of sorts, which is a, a representation to the outside that is not cohesive with what's inside. A representation of the outside that's not cohesive with what's inside. And, and I mean, this is, this is the danger of oftentimes things like Facebook, which give this facade-like appearance. Oh, my marriage? Incredible. We go out for candlelight dinners every Friday night. But in reality, we, we haven't been intimate in months, and we don't talk very much anymore. Oh, my kids, they all got a gold ribbon. Um, but yet, secretly, I, I'm wishing away these years and hoping for the next phase of parenting. I mean, what is it? What's the facade? I mean, can we just be honest about these things? Because that's where the gospel belongs. The gospel belongs inside of these walls. What happens with these walls is after a while, they really do, they become a prison. They don't keep us safe, but they kill us. They destroy us. They choke out from us the very thing we want the most, which is to be known. You and I want to be known. We were made in the image of a God who is a loving God who wants to be known. And you and I want to be known. We want to connect. But it's scary and it's risky, so we live our lives like porcupines. We'll, we'll try to get close, but really the quills are always still there, and we don't want others to get too close. So people go to coffee shops so they can be in proximity with other people, but yet they don't talk to the other people. It's this crowded loneliness type experience in reality. And it is. It's this catch-22, because at a certain point, if you don't let down your walls, you begin to feel choked off by the prison those walls become. But at the same time, if you let down those walls, you might get hurt again. Someone might find out something about you, and maybe they'll judge you or shame you or look away. And hence, that's the situation we find ourselves in. And, you know, for, for redemption, we're a young church. And, and, and we get to decide. We get to decide whether we'll risk, whether we'll trust in the gospel, we'll trust in the good news of grace, and the power of grace so much so that we'll risk bringing down some of those walls, even in places where it's going to seem very scary. It is so painful, it is so life-destroying to go through life pretending and performing. Pretending and performing. Pretend that you have it all together, pretend that everything makes sense, pretend that you've got it all figured out, you've got all, you've got all the plans you'll ever need, your family works, everything works, and then you run on the hamster wheel of life, keeping it all working. And the, the message of the gospel is that you, you can rest and you can be real. You can rest 
because the work's been done for you. And you can be real because you're secure in Christ. Your identity's in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no more shame. There's no more judgment. There's no more marginalizing. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. So when you show up to your life group, when we have conversations after church is over, when we connect with one another, we get to decide, will we pretend and perform or will we rest and be real? And that's the reality. And every single one of us, we're making those choices day in and day out. And if God is our, our fortress, if God is our refuge, if he is our source of strength, if he is our reality, you and I are invited to drop those walls, to become honest, to tell the truth and not fear. Trusting God enables us to boldly face reality and the circumstances around us. So where have you built your walls and where are you running to for refuge? Where have you built your walls and where are you running to for refuge? This is how our psalm closes. Look at verse 8 with me. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes the wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is with us. So what God is saying here is that you can go ahead and you can continue to strive and work and work and work as if all of life depends on your energy, your activity, your effort, your striving. But what you'll find is that ultimately when it's all said and done is when I speak, whatever I say will come into being. That when I open my mouth, the wars will cease to the end of the earth. I'll break the bows, I'll end the conflict, I'll end the strife. I'll burn the chariots. I'll put aside the fire. And if you begin to think about Revelation 21, 22, as the story ends, the Lord begins to dry every tear. He begins to redeem every pain. He begins to deconstruct every last remaining vestige of shame and judgment and condemnation and wall that you and I can muster. And he invites us, he invites us to this incredible spiritual reality. Be still and know that I am God. Now, this is a great coffee cup verse, and I'm sure a lot of us have seen it on posters, and usually there's a stream of water in the background that makes us feel nice. But what's really being conveyed here is that as war rages on, as chariots desolate cities, as bows use their arrows to kill people and destroy villages and cities and people, as wars continue to spread throughout the earth, be still. The, the Hebrew word here is rapah, and what it literally means is to, to drop your hands. To drop your hands. Think about that. You're in the midst of a fight. There's a battle raging around you. What's the one thing you don't want to do when you're in a fight? Drop your hands. You, you don't drop your hands when you're in a fight. I mean, I've been in a few fights when I was in junior high and, and, and elementary school, but you definitely don't drop your hands when you're in a fight. Unless, unless the Lord is your refuge, unless the Lord is your strength, then you can drop your hands. 
You can, you can be still and know that God is God. I think of the example of Martin Luther King in our country during the Civil Rights Movement 40, 50 years ago, how he responded to immense violence and oftentimes suffering and pain by dropping his hands. The power, the confidence, the trust that that must have taken him to do that. And as much as sometimes we forget it, but Martin Luther King was, was a reverend. He put his hope and his trust in a God who would arc a story toward redemption, toward restoration, and fight on his behalf so he didn't have to fight. Or you think of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane as Peter whips out the sword in an impulsive rage and cuts off a guy's ear. And what does Jesus do? Jesus tells Peter, drop your sword. I've got it. Even when it doesn't look like it, that's not a positive situation. I'm sure as Peter's looking around, he's like, Jesus, what are you thinking to tell me to drop the sword? They're here, obviously, to arrest you, and then it's not going to go well for you. Jesus, you realize what's about to happen, right? You realize where this is leading. You realize why the guards are here, but Jesus drops his hands. And so for you and I, if you're a non-Christian and you're here today, the invitation for you is to cease and desist in your rebellion against God, to drop your hands, to surrender to the goodness and the rule and reign of God, to come in and to experience his rest and a new identity and to be part of a new family and to have a new nature because whatever you're striving for, whatever you're working for, whatever facade you're building, whatever continues to haunt you, wherever you're seeking safety, it's like a cardboard box inside of a tornado. It will not hold up. As life rages on, as age catches up with you, as sickness eventually invades your reality, no refuge will be enough. And so God invites you to drop your hands, to surrender. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And so he fights the battle for you. He fights against Satan's sin and death. He fights so much so that he goes to a cross and he takes on sin and he lived a life that you and I could not live and then he died a death that belonged to us because he fought on our behalf. He is our defender. He is the one who fights for us so that we no longer have to fight so we can drop our hands. And then he is resurrected. And that's why we still gather here on Sunday to celebrate, to remember, to realize that we are resurrection people. That just as Jesus resurrected and he had new life, you and I have new life. Christian, remember your baptism. Remember, you went from death to life. And in that, you can drop your hands. There's peace and the striving has ceased. Every day, in the million little decisions of life, from the time that alarm clock goes off to the time your head hits the pillow at bedtime, you'll make a million decisions that are theologically much more significant than any of the books I could ever tell you to read or you could ever read. And in all of those moments, you will proclaim, go back one second, you'll proclaim that I am God, that God is God. Verse 10, you'll proclaim that God is God. 
by the way you live, by the way you treat others, because of the Spirit inside of you, because you're a new creation in Christ, not because you're earning anything, but because you're given a Holy Spirit-driven effort, but you'll make a million decisions that shape and conform you into who you worship, who is your refuge, who is your strength. So tomorrow, when you go to work, and you're sitting at your desk, or you're going about your tasks, or you're checking your emails, or you're completing that paper, who will be your refuge? Who will be your strength? So this is the question I want to leave you guys with. Where in your life do you need to drop your hands and loosen your grip? Where in your, hand, where in your life do you need to drop your hands and loosen your grip? There are walls that some of us have built up long ago from our childhood to our adolescence to years past that we have, man, we've worked really hard to construct them and we feel like they've served us well. But I want to tell you, that's not a wall of safety. That's a prison you've put yourself in. And the Lord invites you to deconstruct it, to take that wall apart, to realize that you can be known and whatever it is, that last 10% that we often don't want other people to find out about, whatever it is, there's grace upon grace upon grace. So today, today's the day to take that wall down. Maybe to have that conversation with your spouse about a wall that has just kind of subtly gone up. Maybe it's not a big thing. Maybe it doesn't seem like a, a huge thing that you need marital counseling or something that you guys can be like. And maybe you're even getting along fine and it's working. But you realize there's another level of connection and intimacy that you're missing out on. Another level of joy, a friendship, a partnership that you're missing out with, with your spouse, just because a wall's gone up. Or maybe it's with a friend, or maybe it's with a parent, or maybe it's with a coworker. Whoever it is, will you take down that wall? Will you loosen your grip? Will you realize you don't have to fight anymore? And see, this is when God's people are at our best. Often what happens in the church is we become very vested in protecting a structure or the walls even we build as a church and a community, and we get very afraid of what's going on around us, not realizing that God has sent us as, as ambassadors and missionaries to the community and the people around us. The church was never meant to construct large walls in which we peeked over at society occasionally and judged them and threw rocks at them and then hid back behind our walls. But we need to deconstruct our walls as a people. Be willing to engage and love those around us even when they don't seem anything like us. Even when it seems hard, even when it seems scary. Because we go with a message of grace, a message of reconciliation, and a message of redemption. So who is it? Who do you need to go to? Who do you need to reconcile with? What conversation do you need to have? If you're in a life group, I want to strongly encourage you this week, when you meet, to have that conversation. What's the wall? How do we deconstruct it so that you may live because the Lord is your refuge and your strength and he's your fortress.